Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May the 7th, 2019. This is episode 2300, I'm sorry, 2433 of the Survival Podcast. I, I teased this one a bit yesterday, and I had to think... Pretty much all day yesterday and a big part of this morning as I was getting a lot of stuff done. There's a lot of new stuff on the side I'll talk about here in a minute is in the intro. Uh, but I had to think about, well, what do I call this show? Because we're going to talk about the dark side of capitalism today, and yet I call myself an anarcho-capitalist. I am a capitalist in the purest form of the word, but I cannot deny that capitalism doesn't do some pretty terrible things. And I don't think of myself as a terrible person. We have a great divide in the world today, chiefly along the lines of, should society be more capitalist or more socialist? And the way that question gets answered, if it gets answered with thought and reason and logic instead of class warfare and name-calling, is it depends on how you're defining the terms. So what I'm calling today's show is understanding systemic versus natural capitalism. And the graphic that I have for today's episode, I think, really speaks to it if you think about it. It's a hand getting ready to move a chess piece. And the words simply say, those who seek to control others will use whatever systems are available to do so. Capitalism can be the most freeing system in the world, or it can be incredibly controlling, depending on what role, if any, the state plays in it. And the state is generally the problem. Socialism can be an amazing force for good, as long as the state stays out of it and it's voluntary. We are naturally social creatures. We have ruined these perfectly good words by making them out to mean something that they do not mean. Socialism happens all the time when a group of people get together and go camping and share all their shit while they're camping. That's socialism. Socialism as a natural way that human beings interact, is not, I repeat, not a form of economics. It is how we, we co collaborate and interact with each other on a voluntary basis as social creatures. I won't use the word animals because some of you really don't like to call people animals even though we're in the animal kingdom. But as social beings, we are social beings. Very few of us are actually cut out to be, uh, what's the word you use for people that want to go off and live on their own? A hermit, right? Very few people really are going to be the hermit in the wilderness, especially by choice. Most of the people we find that did it at some point ran away from some fear. They didn't do it because they just wanted to be that way. There is the rare person. But humans naturally gravitate toward being with other humans on a voluntary interactive basis. This is the basis of actual natural socialism. Socialism as an adjective rather than as a system of control. And capitalism is much the same way. I believe that capitalism is the only natural economic system that humans have. It's the only one. There is no other system of economics that is a natural system of economics. I'll explain all of that and more when we get into today's topic. Before we do... Let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today, is Ridge Wallet. I love Ridge Wallet. 
because it protects me from identity theft. It looks really cool. It's minimized how much I'm carrying, and it's made me a happier person. I don't know what else you could look for in something as simple as a wallet. And if you had told me, let's say, two and a half years ago that, hey, Jack, there's this wallet that will change your life just a little bit, I would have told you to shut up and that you are being ridiculous and that you don't make any sense to me. Well, that was before I got that big billfold out of my back pocket, stopped having to sit on it all the time, messing up my back, and got rid of a bunch of things that I was carrying around that I thought I needed that I didn't. I got the Ridge wallet, all of that changed, and it's just awesome. And everywhere I go when I take it out, people are like, what is that? Where do you get one of those? That's the Ridge wallet, man. And they have some other really cool stuff, phone cases, a really cool day pack, power options for powering up your devices. Check them out today, ridgewallet.com. And for a 10% discount, if you're an MSB member, go to the benefits section before you buy. Next up today, JM Bullion. Uh, we're going to talk about natural capitalism today. And in natural capitalism, we rightfully acquire property, and it's not anybody else's right to take that property from us. It's property that we are then should be able to just keep. And if we choose to take that piece of property and exchange it with somebody else, that should be a free exchange. That's capitalism, not what we actually have in our, our country today. Well, one way you can do that is with silver. You can take your Federal Reserve space credits, we call them dollars, You can buy some silver and you can put it in a place and keep it where don't nobody know about it but you, me, and the fence posts, as we used to say here in Texas. And when you want to do something with it, like let's say give it to your heirs or trade it with a neighbor, then again, it's between you, them, and the fence post, okay? That's one of the really great things about silver. Now, look, I actually see value in U.S. dollars. Most of my assets are in dollars because that's what we have and that's what we use and As a society, that, that is a store of value today, whether you believe it or not. So I don't, I don't do this crap where like, you need to get rid of all your money and buy all silver and gold. I think that's a dumb idea. They are commodities and they are speculative stores of wealth. But history has shown them to be very good stores of wealth. So I recommend 5 to 10% of your net wealth in silver and or gold. And the reason I say to buy from JM Bullion is one, they sponsored this show now for almost eight years. So they are loyal to us. Number two, they have better pricing than the big silver houses like Monix and Atmix. Number three, they ship everything free. And number four, if there's any kind of a problem, I can get the president on personal email in a matter of seconds, and he will respond to me. I've even had him quickly respond. I'll take care of this when I get off a plane. I'm getting on a flight, right? So, I mean, that kind of personal service. And on top of it, if you're an MSB member, they give you a discount. So why the hell would you buy your silver and gold, which is the same silver and gold you buy anywhere else, somewhere else, pay for shipping, pay more for it, not have someone that can advocate for you if something goes wrong, and not get a discount? I, I mean, why? Why? It doesn't support what you believe in. JM Bullion, they do all of those five things. Check them out today, jmbullion.com, and yeah, get your discount. On discounts, got some big announcements for you. I've been teasing this too. Um, we have just brought on not one, Not two, but three is the number, and the number shall be three, not four nor five, but three of the numbers shall be today. Uh, MSB vendors. Here's what we got. Kimberly's Cupboard uh, is a source of herbal products like hand-blended teas, healing salves, essential oils, handcrafted soaps, and skin care. Uh, this company was started about five years ago. A uh, guy was listening to this show and was always talking about starting a business, but they needed more money in the house, and he had suggested to his wife that she get a job. And she said, you know, all this business talk you're talking about, maybe we should do that. And she asked them to put a few hundred bucks in to get her started. And she did. And now they have a thriving business with great products. I've been using, the mosquitoes are out, man. Even with repellent, the mosquitoes are out. 
and about this spring. And, you know, you get one of those big old lumpy mosquito bites and it itches. The chickweed salve they sent me, man, that stuff knocks it out. They have awesome comfrey salve. I really like Dr. Christopher's. I always will. It's got a lot of really great stuff in it, but it kind of didn't smell good if you know what I'm talking about. They use some cinnamon in their comfrey salve, and it makes it smell good. Um, they have a lot of great products. My wife is in love with them, and uh, so I was really excited to bring them on. They're doing a 15% discount for MSB members. Next up, this is a big one. My buddy Nathan Love at Frontier Tactical has reached out to me, and we worked on it and came out with a discount for you guys. This discount is 20% off everything that Frontier Tactical sells. They've got a lot of stuff. Uh, they are a firearms manufacturer. They offer AR-15 accessories. But their big thing is called the Warlock System. What's the Warlock System? Well, with just a sim some simple modifications you can do yourself. I even did it with one of my ARs. You can install the Warlock System. And when you want to, let's say, take your AR-15 that's shooting 5.56, .223, whatever, and I don't know, maybe you want to shoot uh, 17.223 and do some varmint hunting. How about that? Same magazines, it's the same overall case, uh, bolt head works, everything's the same. Well, all you do is you turn this, this little thing on, on, the, on the collar where the barrel joins the receiver and pop. I'm not talking about taking the receiver apart. I'm just, you just yank the barrel off, stick the new barrel on, and turn it and lock it. And just like that, you've switched calibers. It is freaking awesome, and it's a money saver. If you're a person that wants to shoot multiple calibers on the AR platform, every time you add a caliber versus bringing in a, new, a whole new upper, everything gets better. You save more and more money. Now you get 20% off on it. And even though it's a very affordable system, it does cost some money. And 20%, guys, on a Warlock system, 20% will put the money from your MSB back in your pocket for a couple of years or more, depending on how many calibers you want. you got to check out Frontier Tactical, 20% off. Next, tspgear.co. Uh, Michael Leonardo is the dude that has kind of set that up. It's kind of a print-on-demand service. They do T-shirts and stuff. Whenever I come up with something, like I'm wearing a T-shirt today that says, um, I'm self-employed, but I still hate my boss. That was just something I came up with on the fly one time, and he made a shirt for it. It's in tspgear.co, tspgear.co. 10% off. All the cool stuff's there. All the funny shirts. Uh, dead is cancer, but being a vegan is worse. Some just TSP branded stuff. I have a, a riff on the, the, the Make America Great Again caps. you got to see it. I'm not going to tell you what it is on the air. I've got kind of a PG and an R-rated version of it just to tweak off snowflakes. I wear it on some of my Instagram videos and stuff. Check it out. TSPgear.co. Cool stuff. 10% off. So I just brought you three discount vendors of three really great different product sets. And I want you to think about this. In the last 90 days, this is what I've added to the MSB in the last 90 days. Frontier Tactical, Kimberly's Cupboard, TSPgear.co, O'Meal's Hot, uh, Hot Meals Ready to Go, Hemp Magic CBD products. That can pay for it alone if you're a CBD user. Uh, Food Forest Farms Coffee, Fish Newer Fertilizer. All in the last three months, I brought you all of those guys to the MSB. If the MSB was only made up of them, it would pay for itself. There's more than 60 other vendors. If you're not an MSB member, consider becoming one. Just go to survivalpodcast.com. Click on members. It really does pay for itself. Next up, just wanted to let you guys know, I've put out some videos recently. You might want to check the site or the YouTube channel. Uh, just this morning, I put out a video on the new 3,200-gallon timber frame pond, the one we did the workshop on. 
how the aeration system works in it. We're training Shabunk and Goldfish, so they'll be tamed like little puppy dogs in the pond. Uh, discuss some of the plants. It's a really cool video. And yesterday I put out a video as well um, on the aviary and showing all of the updates in the aviary. You can find that in the uh, YouTube channel as well. With that, let's go ahead. I know it was long, and let's, let's kind of get into this. Um, again, when I, when I put this together, I had to really think about the title of today's show. And it was spawned by a very anti-capitalist article at a, a, a blog called The Exiled. And it is by a guy named Yasha Levine, who's Soviet-born. And I'm going to tell you that my instinct is, because I can't actually find any declaration, that this dude's an anarchist. Uh, the, the, there's like one line in this article I'm about to read that's quite long that will kind of tip to that side. I also think he comes more from a leftist vantage point, uh, where I am more of a capitalist anarchist, right? I think we actually agree probably more than we disagree. I just want to kind of preface that. Now, I've looked at some of his social media and stuff, and he's a lot like me in a way because he beats up on the Republicans and the Democrats equally well. But this article and some of the things I'm going to say today might push you in the wrong direction. So what I'm going to ask you to do is something we have a hard time doing in America today. I want, to take, I want you to take your political ideology, whatever it is, even if it's anarchism like, like me, and I want you to put it in a little bowl, and I want you to set it on the shelf. It's not going to go anywhere. It doesn't have an expiration date. It's not going to go sour like milk if it's left out. I want you to just put it there for the duration of this podcast and listen with an open mind because you're not going to hear me change who I am today and who you expect me to be. But I'm going to say some things, and I don't even think the things I'm going to say or that are in this article are going to be things that you disagree with, but it will use certain terminology and words that you come to think certain things about, both positive and they will talk negative about those, or words that you would think about more of a negative word that will talk positively about those, and therefore it will cause some level of cognitive dissonance. None of us are immune to cognitive dissonance. There's times when I'm reading stuff or I'm listening to someone and say something I actually agree with, but there's a terminology in there And it has that kind of trigger point, like, hey, wait, uh, please, please don't do that today. Because what I'm going to talk about today will explain to you why people actually believe in socialism as an economic system. Because when they say capitalism doesn't work, they don't mean what you mean. And you don't mean what they mean. And you are trying to discuss an ideology, a concept, where it means different things to both of you, and therefore you cannot have a decent conversation. It's impossible. So here's this article. Uh, again, this is from Yasha Levine. It's on The Exiled. And uh, it's called Recovered Economic History. Everyone but an idiot knows that the lower classes must be kept poor or they will never be industrious. And this is long, and I generally don't read long articles. I think this article is necessary for the show today, so I'll read it in full to you. Our popular economic wisdom says that capitalism equals freedom and free societies, right? Well, if you ever suspected that that logic is full of shit, then I recommend checking out a book called The Invention of Capitalism, written by an economic historian named Michael Perlman, who has been exiled to Chico State, a redneck college in rural California, for his lack of free market friendliness. And Perlman has been putting his time in exile to damn good use, digging deep into the words and correspondence 
of Adam Smith and his contemporaries to write a history of the creation of capitalism that goes beyond superficial The Wealth of Nations fairy tale and straight to the source, allowing you to read the early, early capitalists, economists, philosophers, clergymen, and statesmen in their own words, and it ain't pretty. One thing that the historical record makes obviously clear is that Adam Smith and his laissez-faire buddies, here's, the, here's where you know this guy's probably an anarchist writing this article, his closet, his, his, his uh, I'm sorry, one thing that the historical record makes obviously clear is that Adam Smith and his laissez-faire buddies were a bunch of closet statists who needed brutal government policies to whip the English peasantry into a good capitalistic workforce willing to accept wage slavery. Francis Hutchison, for whom Adam Smith learned all about the virtue of natural liberty, wrote, quote, If it is the one great design of civil laws to strengthen by political sanctions the several laws of nature, the populace needs to be taught and engaged by laws into the best methods of managing their own affairs and exercising mechanical art, end quote. Yet, despite what you may have learned, the transition to a capitalist society did not happen naturally or smoothly. See, English peasants didn't want to give up their rural, communal lifestyles, leave their land and go to work for below subsistence wages in shitty, dangerous factories being set up by a new rich class of land-owning capitalists, and for good reason, too. Using Adam Smith's own estimates of factory wages being paid at the time, in Scotland, a factory peasant would have to toil for more than three days to buy a, a pair of commercially produced shoes. Or they could make their own traditional brogues using their own leather in a matter of hours and spend the rest of the time getting wasted on ale. It's not really much of a choice, is it? But in order for capitalism to work, capitalists needed a pool of cheap surplus labor. So what to do? Call in the National Guard, faced with a peasantry that didn't feel like playing the role of slave, Philosophers, economists, politicians, moralists, and leading business figures began advocating for government action. Over time, they enacted a series of laws and measures designed to push peasants out of the old and into the new by destroying their traditional means of self-support. Quote, the brutal acts associated with the process of stripping the majority of people of the means of producing for themselves might seem far removed from the laissez-faire reputation of classical political economy, end quote, writes Perlman, quote, in reality, the disposition of the minority, majority of small-scale producers and the construction of laissez-faire are closely connected, so much so that Marx, or at least his translators, labeled this expropriation of the masses as primitive accumulation, end quote. Perlman outlines that many different policies through which peasants were forced off the land, from the enactment of so-called game laws that prohibited peasants from hunting, to the destruction of the peasant productivity by fencing the commons into smaller lots. But by far the most interesting part of the book are where you get to read Adam Smith's proto-capitalist colleagues complaining and whining about how peasants are too independent and comfortable to be properly exploited and trying to figure out how to force them to accept life of wage slavery. This pamphlet from the time cap captures the general attitude towards successful, self-sufficient peasant farmers. The possession of a cow or two with a hog and a few geese naturally exalts the peasant, and sauntering after his cattle he acquires a habit of indolence. Quarter, half, and occasionally whole days are imperceptibly lost. Day labor becomes disgusting. 
and at length the sale of half-fed calf or hog furnishes the means of adding intemperance to idleness. While another pamphleteer wrote, Nor can I conceive of a greater course upon the body of people than to be thrown upon a spot of land where the productions for subsistence and food were, in great measure, spontaneous, and the climate required or admitted little care for remnant or covering. John Bellers, a Quaker philanthropist and economic thinker, saw independent peasants as a hindrance to his plan of forcing poor people into prison factories where they would live, work, and produce a profit of 45% for aristocratic owners. Quote, Our forests and great commons make the poor that are upon them too much like the Indians, being a hindrance to industry and our nurseries of idleness and insolence. Daniel Defoe, a novelist and trader, noted that in the Scottish Highlands, people were extremely well furnished with provisions, venison exceedingly plentiful, and at all seasons, young or old, which they kill with their guns wherever they find it. To Thomas Pennant, a botanist, the self-sufficiency was ruining a perfectly good peasant population. Quote, the manners of the native Highlanders may be expressed in these words, indolent to a high degree unless roused to war or anything animating amusement. If having a full belly and productive land was the problem, then the solution to whipping these lazy bums into shape was obvious. Kick them off the land and let them starve. Author Young, a popular writer and economic thinker respected by John Stuart Mill, wrote in 1771, Everyone but an idiot knows that the lower classes must be kept poor or they will never be industrious, end quote. Sir William Temple, a politician and Jonathan Swift's boss, agreed and suggested that food be taxed as much as possible to prevent the working class from a life of sloth and debauchery. Temple also advocated for putting four-year-old kids to work in factories, writing, For by these means we hope that the rising generation will be so habituated to constant employment that it would be at length prove agreeable and entertaining to them. Some thought that four was already too old. According to Perlman, John Locke, often seen as a philosopher of liberty, called for the commencement of work at the ripe age of three. Child labor also ex excited Defoe, who was joyed at this prospect that, quote, children after four or five years of age could every one earn their own bread, end quote. But that's getting off topic. Even David Hume, the great humanist, held poverty and hunger as positive experiences for lower class, and even blamed the poverty of France on its good weather and fertile soil. Quote, "'Tis always observed in years of scarcity, if it be not extreme, that the poor labor more and really live better." End quote. Reverend Joseph Townsend believed restricting food was the way to go. Direct legal constraint to labor is attended with too much trouble, violence, and noise, whereas hunger is not only a peaceable, silent, and unremittent pressure, but is the most natural motive to industry. It calls forth the most powerful exertions. Hunger will tame the fiercest animals. It will teach decency and civility, obedience and subjugation to the most brutish, the most obstinate, and the most perverse. Patrick Colloquin, a merchant who set up England's first private preventative police force to prevent dock workers from supplementing their meager wages with stolen goods, provided what may be the most lucid explanation of how hunger and poverty correlate to productivity and wealth creation. 
Poverty is that state and condition in society where the individual has no surplus labor in store, or, in other words, no property or means of subsistence, but what is derived from the constant exercise of industry in various occupations of life. Poverty is therefore a most necessary and indispensable ingredient in society, without which nations and communities could not exist in a state of civilization. It is the lot of man. It is the source of wealth. Since without poverty there could be no labor, there could be no riches, no refinement, no comfort, and no benefit to those who may be possessed of wealth. Colquitt's summary is so on the money it has to be repeated because what was true for English peasants is still just as true to us. Poverty is therefore a most necessary and indispensable ingredient in society. It is the source of wealth, since without poverty there could be no labor, and there could be no riches, no refinement, no comfort, and no benefit to those who may be possessed of wealth. I want to give credit to Chris, who sent me the email that, that triggered all this with this link. He said, somehow I didn't know that the British industrial working class had to be conjured into existence by forcing the self-sufficient peasantry away from the resources that made them self-sufficient. In that line, Jefferson's vision of a nation of independent smallholders was doomed from the start. Even people who weren't loyalists would still have wanted to imitate the British political and economic system, such as Hamilton. Uh, the more I learn about how the system is built to oppose and discourage what you're doing, the more I admire what you do. Um, again, I, I know some of that may be hard to hear, but most of what you didn't want to hear was the words of people that you've been taught were pro-liberty. Their own words. Not, not what somebody said they meant, but what they said. Like, they wrote it down so we can like look at it and read it and stuff. Again, I had to think a lot about what to what to call today's show. And what this led me to was the distinction between a system of capitalism and general statism in the form of modern fascism in most nations that would be called capitalists today and natural capitalism. To me, natural capitalism is the only truly natural system of economics we have. Natural capitalism recognizes that people acquire things, And if they do so by legitimate means, it's their property. Further, that some people are better at or like to do some things more than other people do. Hence, trade is a way for people to gain that which they do not have. And in doing so, both parties are better off for it. Further, natural capitalism recognizes that most people don't want to hurt or kill others. Even more so that people do not want to be hurt or killed. So it is simply better for everyone to conduct trade between individuals, tribes, nations, rather than take by force what one wants. Even when you're the type that will steal, harm, and kill, the reality is if you do it long enough, someone's likely to do it back to you. When most people use the term capitalism in a positive way, this is what they mean. For instance, if I grow food and I sell the surplus to Tom, Tom's money is now mine to keep or spend to do whatever I want with My food is now Tom's. He can eat it. He can share it. He can sell it to someone else for a profit. He can do whatever he wants to it. He can throw it away. He acquired it with his rightfully acquired capital. I now have the capital. He now has a form of natural capital in the form of food. It's, and it's up to us to decide whether we want to trade or not. It's our choice. If Tom doesn't want to buy from me, he doesn't have to. If I don't want to sell to Tom, I don't have to. And that's all good and well. But what happens when the state gets involved? And something natural is made forced, unnatural or coerced. As we have seen so far with this article, and we will see more of today, many times some very bad things happen. 
What we can say the same thing about, though, is the supposed antonym of capitalism, socialism. We think of socialism as a form of economics, but it really isn't until the state forces it to be such. Socialism is a natural state. It's the cooperation by humans because those cooperating view it as beneficial to them to do so. If 20 people settle around a lake, for instance, and see it as vital to their lives, then they'll set up some agreements. It's socialism. It's also natural socialism, not economic socialism run by the state. The agreements in the lake situation might be on, well, how many fish can we take out of the lake? Perhaps there's even a way where fish are shared, if we all agree to that. How much water can be used for irrigation? What can and can't be put in the lake? If it needs maintenance, you know, then the people may pull labor to do the work, or they may pull money, and everybody throws some money in, and we get the work done by somebody with a machine. This is pure, honest socialism. The choice is up to the individual. If you want to be part of this group, these are the rules the group has agreed to. And if you don't want to be part of this group, you are free to go anywhere you want. No one will compel you to come here and be part of what we're doing. Systemic socialism is when the person is required to be part of the group they never asked to be part of, and their property is taken in the name of the collective good. What I'm trying to say today is capitalism and socialism can both be wonderful things when humans are left to their natural inclinations and using them on a voluntary basis. But once the state gets involved, either can be used to enslave a population. And I know as I was reading that, and you were thinking about these poor people working in these death trap factories and barely making enough money to live and you know, yet li almost living in the damn things, basically being in a forced work camp type situation. When I was talking about it, you think, well, that's not how America works. Well, that's because we outsourced it. It was at one time a lot how America worked in, in you know, uh, in, in really heavily pre-Civil War years in uh, America, antebellum. It was very much that way for a lot of people. We had something that other nations didn't have, though. But we were very much mimicking the way our father, our nation's father, Great Britain was, right? I mean, it's how the people have really, really looked at America at the time was that, yeah, we had this war with Great Britain, and yeah, we were our own independent thing, but Great Britain was still the father. In fact, I believe one of the founders said during the negotiations for the Declaration of Independence, may the sword of the father never spill the blood of the son. So this was a mindset. So today, the conditions described are very much like the conditions in China. And I know what you'll say, but China's communist, China's at least socialist. Yeah, it doesn't matter what they are, though. We use them for that source of labor in their poverty. And there is a belief that the only way to get people to do anything is for them to have to to eat or they'll just sit around and do nothing. And some people will. But that's not society as a whole. That's not how people work. I, I honestly, at this point in my life, if I didn't want more than I have, if I didn't want to continue to teach, if I didn't want to continue to inspire, I have enough that right now I could sit back and I wouldn't be able to do all the things that I do financially anymore But I could live a decent life, better than most peasant farmers, for the rest of my life until I die. I am driven to do more. The, the issue is that the elite become convinced 
They are the only people like that. That's, that's these people that you were hearing about. And we have modern versions of them today. The, the, the lower class must be controlled or they are a threat to your way of life. That's how these people think. Now, I'm not talking about all rich people. I, I don't mean that. There are a lot of really good rich people, but there are also a lot of elitist scum. And it's not about, and I'm going to use these words now, as forms of economic control by the state. I'm going to come out of the natural forms of them. Socialist, capitalist, fascist, communist. It doesn't matter what the system is. The people in the elite class, and there's always an elite class. There was an elite class in the Soviet Union. There is an elite class in China. There's an elite class in places like Iran. It does, and that's a theocracy, right? It doesn't matter what the system of control is. The elite class, if they have access to the apparatus that is the state, and they always will, by the nature of being the elite class, will use that system to control others. We can use capitalism to control a society, and we can use socialism to control a society. I know what you're conditioned to say, but capitalism gives the individual more opportunity to change their lot in life. I agree. It doesn't mean that capitalism can't be used to control a society, and it is. And in general, as soon as the state gets involved, I don't care what you say that you know the U.S. is a capitalist economy. The U.S. is a socialist economy. And the, the type of socialism that we most resemble is fascism. And specifically what I call neo-fascism. And what a lot of people don't realize when they say things like neocon or neoliberal or whatever, what neo means. Neo means new. People throw that word around all the time. No idea what it means. No idea is when they say neocon, they're saying new conservatives. Well, neo-fascism is the revised version of fascism that the United States has been aggressively pursuing since just before World War II, but specifically after World War II. In a, a, a classic fascist economy, the state and industry work together, and they leverage the differences between the classes, lower class, upper class, middle class, etc., to the advantage of both industry and the state. But in old fascism, classic fascism, the state was in control. In neo-fascism, the industry is in control. Instead of the state harnessing industry to do the state's bidding, industry buys through lobbying the influence of the state so that the state does the, the, the business of industry. That's why, and if you doubt that, then you have to explain how almost every piece of legislation that's been passed in the last 40 years has been written by corporations, not by congressmen and senators. I'm serious. You, if you go and take any law that was written and you trace it back to its origin, you see Congressman Ass Clown 3 is the one that introduced it. If you keep going from there, you'll find he didn't write it and his staff didn't write it. A corporation wrote it, gave it to a lobbyist, who put it on his desk along with a big fat campaign contribution. Then, yes, the Congress clowns will wrangle it out, and they won't make alterations. But most of the alterations are Congressman Ass Clown 4 also got visited by a lobbyist, and he wanted his little thing added on to it. 
And so we literally have had our laws driven by the whims of industry for decades. And not because capitalism is bad, because the systems of control will always be utilized by the elite class. That It doesn't matter if it was socialism. Then they would do it with socialism instead of, you know, sort of like a hybrid between fascism and capitalism. The problem for socialists is the economics actually break down much quicker. Because things do start to fall apart. Because there is an inkling of truth to the elitist capitalist belief that if we, if we don't make the poor miserable, they won't work. Well, there's a big difference in the poor being left to their small holding and to hunt venison and to grow their own food and to conduct commerce amongst each other and form voluntary associations where they share resources and, and common ownership of certain things. And here is free money and free stuff. There's a huge difference. If you leave people to themselves, there are people that will be industrious in engineering and want to do other things, and there will be people that will be happy with that, but they will have to do something. They will all drive some sort of you know, progress. But when we try to make so see, that's natural socialism and natural capitalism coexisting as a single thing, because there is no such thing as a society without socialism as an adjective. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Put 20 people together. They start making plans. They start figuring out. I get emails all the time. We had one yesterday. How do I create a mutual aid group? You mean socialism. No, socialism is Venezuela. No, that socialism is an economic system of control. We're talking about social interaction, right, as a natural way that humans interact. You, you put people together, and they form alliances, They form cooperatives. They form ways by which they can help each other and mutually benefit because it's what we do. They also commence to trading. You want this? Well, I don't feel like doing that today. But you know what? If you gave me some of that, I could trouble myself to do it. This is the way humans naturally are. And if you go to any indigenous society where the socialist utopianists will say, see, this is how they live. They share everything. No, they don't. No, they don't. They share a lot of things. They also have freedom to leave. No one makes anybody stay. And there will be trade and commerce. Many times you, what you'll see is that group does, certain indigenous groups today still, if they're left alone enough, they pretty much do share everything amongst themselves. But then they have some sort of external economy, some sort of thing they produce that brings in an income that requires trade with outside entities. And you don't get to just go be part of that, and they don't go out and grab people and make them be part of it. So they have capitalism as an economic natural system and socialism as a natural social way that people interact, coexisting in complete peace until we go screw it up. Because what always screws it up is the state. So you only have two approaches to making these things work without people being heavily controlled. One is an anarchist system and the other is a minarchist system. For those that can't quite get their head around how we could live in a 100% voluntary society, if you have a small enough form of government, these things can mostly work themselves out.
They really can. However, and this is the great problem, the state is an organism. We don't think of it as an organism. We think of it as an agreement, a contract between people and their masters. But the state literally is an organism. And it's an organism that we describe at times as continuity of government. Of course, continuity of government being a plan, if we get nuked or something, how do we you know, go forward? But continuity of government exists even without a plan for it. And what I mean by that is when you look at, let's say, the United States, which is a fairly young country but still well over 200 years old now, all of the people that put it together are dead. It's still here. All of the people that were the kids 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 of the people that put it together are dead. Okay? They're all dead. And yet it's still here. And it got bigger all by itself. Well, I know the congressman did it. No, no. It existed. And because it existed, the people that will use any system that exists to control others did so. And by its very nature, it grew. So the problem with minarchism isn't that it works or doesn't work. It's that it works so well that it ends up creating the most colossal state known to man. In our case, the United States of America. You really can't think of a more colossal empire, a bigger state, with more ways of controlling people, not just within its borders, but around the world, than the United States of America. We're talking about a country, we have a military presence in well over 100 nations. We tell other nations what they can and can't do, and a lot of times they actually listen to us. We can change the price of tea in China. We can actually do that. Seriously. We have that much power and that much control. Well, how did we get it? Because the state is an organism. It literally grows by the very fact that it exists in the first place. So when you create a minarchist society, very few rules. My roads, we'll build the roads, yeah? We'll do that with stolen money because we can't figure out how else to do it. All right. And, you know, bridges will do that, too. And maybe we'll even have some sort of a basic form of education for people. And then if somebody steals some shit, there'll be some guys that go take it back and put that guy in a cage until he learns his lesson. Somebody kills somebody, we'll throw a rope over a tree and have a formal way in which we decide to stretch his neck to keep, you know, things from getting out of hand with lynch mobs. But that's kind of it, you know. You don't get to take somebody else's property. They don't get to take yours. You don't get to hurt people. And instead of having some sort of you know, basic tribalistic way that that's handled. Like, don't go mess with those people because they'll kill you back, right? We have this kind of minarchist society. What will happen is whatever power that entity, that state is given, it will use that limited power to create another power. And now we'll have more power. And it will use that limited power to create another power. And then it will have more power. And it will continue to grow. And that is exactly how this country became what it is. From a standpoint of interfering in the lives of people. Our nation is, at the same time, one of the greatest forces for good that has ever existed. And at the exact same time, one of the greatest forces for evil. And if you don't believe that, all you got to do is look at the body count and the bomb count. I know you may not like hearing that. But the numbers don't lie. Our nation has been bombing or shooting somebody 
for the vast majority of its existence. I, I, I don't remember the exact number of years now, but it is almost ridiculous. It is almost ridiculous. There are, there are people alive today that are young adults who have never lived while the United States wasn't at war with somebody. And yet, we are, at this point in history, probably the, the, the single best hope, if you want freedom and liberty, is to live here. And the way we got into that conflict is this organist, organ, you know, organism component to the state. It will grow. And it will grow without real restriction. You think you're restricting it, but all it has to do is trick the, the current generation into removing a restriction for their own good. And if you don't think this place can turn into Venezuela, you're wrong. It can. And if you don't think this place can turn into a much better place than it is today, you're, you're also wrong. It's up to us. In the end, we decide how much we let the people that are in charge control us. The problem in America today is at the same time the state has bloated itself into the most controlling it's ever been, we have people that want to be controlled. The system of indoctrination we call education has been so effective that we have people like the young man mentioned yesterday in yesterday's closing that when asked, well, you know, if you're going to join the military and go off to these countries, like, what do you know about these wars and why we're there and should we be there? And basically his answer is, People smarter than me can worry about that. You're getting ready at 18 to sign away a huge portion of your freedom to state you will do what you are asked to do within certain boundaries for a number of years, four, six, whatever it is. And if you don't, you're giving the other party the right to put you in prison. You, you That's what happens. If you go in the military... And you're sent somewhere, and you say, I'm not going, and you go AWOL, they will arrest you and put you in Fort Leavenworth, if you're in the Army anyway. You're agreeing to that. You're agreeing to take orders from somebody you don't even know yet. And you, you just figure that people that are smarter than you got it figured out? And it, it doesn't even give you pause? You see, that's where we're at in society, and that's why we're in such a precarious position today. What's kept us free is that actual capitalism is a natural human behavior. And because of that, and because of the amount of liberty that does exist, even with all the flaws we have, there have been so many examples of what people can achieve that we've maintained enough people in our population that believe in that possibility and try to acquire it for themselves. You know, this leads me to a question that I hear the left ask a lot. And I've never heard anybody but me answer it the way I'm about to answer it for you. The question is, why does rural America, the middle class and lower class Americans, throughout all these rural areas that always vote Republican, why do they vote against policies that would be in their own self-interest? I mean, if you think about it, taxing the shit out of the rich and giving the money to the poor seems like it's in the best interest of the poor. And some guy making twenty-five grand a year changing oil in, in, in you know Podunk, West Virginia, qualifies. And that's what they're asking. It's like, like basically, we're saying we want all this good stuff taken from the rich and given to people just like you, 
Why would you vote against that? I, I don't even understand why it's a question, because the answer is, is just painfully obvious. Morality. See, that guy making twenty-five grand a year, changing oil part-time at a quickie lube, you know, in, in Podunk, West Virginia, he actually feels this way. That guy over there that has what he has, I don't have any right to it. Just because I have less doesn't mean I have a right to it. That morality is what's kept this nation from completely falling into the grip of socialism as an economic system for over 200 years. It's that, it's that morality. As that morality erodes and people take the true history of capitalism that we talked about today as a system of control, we have gotten into a place in society where people naturally want to bifurcate into one of two sides. They want to fractionalize into A or B, Coke or Pepsi, gold or silver, right? a false dichotomy. And if you can convince them that capitalism, without even really defining what you mean by that, is bad, then they believe what? Their only alternative is socialism. Capitalism isn't working. Capitalism has worked since the dawn of human beings. Again, it is a natural form of economics. We're using the same word and we mean different things. The first time a band, a tribe of, of nomadic people was walking across plains, and they looked across the plains, and there was another group of people coming the other direction. And they were like, man, I don't know, these guys could be dangerous. And the other side was like, oh, these guys could be dangerous. So they kind of carefully approached each other and figured out some means of communication since so they probably used somewhat of a different language or at least dialect. And realized, okay, we don't want to hurt you. You don't want to hurt us. We're going to go on our way. But hey, wait a minute. You guys got a lot of meat there. Well, yes, we are a tribe of hunters. We have much meat. Well, we, we don't really have a lot of meat. We got a whole bunch of this, this, this wild grain of some sort that we foraged. Could we trade you some of this grain for some of your meat? And they said, yes, you can do that. And that exchange happened. And specifically, once that exchange happened and these two groups of people realized that one was settled here and one was settled there and one had different resources than the other and they could have ongoing trade amongst each other, natural capitalism was born. And it's, it's, it has been the bedrock of human interrelationship since such a thing existed. But again, there are people, and we call them psychopaths, that wish to control other people. I believe they are literally mentally defective. And these people will come into that, and later, with the advent of agriculture, figure out how to create stores of value and write a slip for grain in a, in a building against it and use that as a mechanism of control. Or at the advent of the Industrial Revolution, realize, hey, we got to get all these lazy-ass peasants off their ass and in here working. You know, look at them. They're sitting over there. they got their geese and their cows and their pigs. They, they, you know, they work four or five hours a day. And they hang out with each other and get drunk on apple cider from apples they just pick up off the ground that fall every year. We got to figure out how to get them in here. We'll call it capitalism. In short, when you and I say capitalism, we're, we mean free enterprise. We mean people voluntarily doing business with each other. When the people that are critical of capitalism use the word capitalism, they're talking about control of the capital itself. 
They're talking about the banks. And not your little podunk bank that you go down to and you know the name of the loan officer on a first-name basis. The big banks that actually print the money that leverage your debt to write blank checks for themselves. You're both right. But the solution is wrong on both sides. The solution is letting these people do whatever they want in the name of a free market Or the solution is complete control of the population in the name of equity and equality. Neither one of those will work because it's forced coercion. That's well, a kind of a double affirmative, I guess, or something there. For you. you really can't have coercion that isn't forced, can you? But, but it, it actually bears being said because it's so valid. We are forcing people to do things they don't want to do against their will who otherwise would be harming no one. Because we want things to be our way. The greatest misery that was necessary for this way of life to exist has been largely outsourced to the third world. Now, what do I want to do about that? Not a lot. That's those people's issue to sort out. China's issues, I don't want to interfere with China. I don't want to interfere with Venezuela. I don't want to interfere with Korea. I don't want to interfere with anybody. I want everybody to live their life their own way. And I want nations to trade with each other. In the words of Jefferson, I would like commerce with all and alliances with none. Probably our greatest founder, the most proactive advocate of liberty that came out of that group of founders was Jefferson. Those are his words. There's something else we need to accept about many of our founders, though. Our founders were not a bunch of you know pure libertarians that didn't believe in a class system. They largely did. They were largely trying to create a new style of aristocracy for themselves. Including, I mean, Washington and Adams, definitely, for all the good they did, that was their legitimate goal. We must create this aristocracy that the people that just fought to get rid of one will accept. And the people were largely willing to do it because many of them were proud Englishmen, even now as Americans, they liked this idea. They had been taught. They had been indoctrinated too. Breaking the cycle? Jefferson had the idea for breaking the cycle. I believe it was the real reason for the idea, and that was the small holdings. That each of us should develop our own small holding, our own place to provide some of what we need for ourselves. This is the way to liberty, and it's why society is so hell-bent against it. Society is against it. That's why people that go out and live off the land are considered weird and freaks and hippies. But yet, we just constantly have generation after generation, huge segments that want to do it. Why? Because it's innately human. We were meant to put our hands in soil and our feet bare upon the ground. We were meant to do that. We are not an agricultural species. Agricultural, making us an agricultural species, which is the culture of land. Agriculture means not the culture of plants. It means the culture of land. Making us an agricultural species was the primary means by which society was placed under the control of the ruling class. And the primary way you do that is you take people out of what you would call a horticultural existence. These, these peasant farmers were not agricultural people. They were horticultural people. 
by the very lack of mechanization, they kind of had to be. They, you, you couldn't put in a farm of 8,000 acres. It wasn't doable. You couldn't manage it. You had to have a small holding. And then you had to provide quite a bit of your own food. So you can't eat bread alone. So you might grow some wheat or some barley or some form of grain on a nice flat place to do that. But all the fields were lined with trees. And anything that was a natural resource, to some degree, was protected. So in the fields of these peasants, there were also these apple trees that, that came from Kazakhstan. But as soon as they figured out how to put the seed in the ground, this apple thing comes off of it. Everybody planted them. Hazelnuts grew. Some oaks produced acorns that were valuable food either for people or for livestock. So then other livestock were added. Everybody had a kitchen garden and an herb garden and grew things. Everybody had a pig and all the waste went to the pig. This is, this is how these people were living. And this was a threat to what these new capitalists, neo-capitalists of the time, I guess, wanted. They wanted giant factories. They wanted mechanization. We live in a society today where a lot of that work can be done with equipment. You could afford to pay one guy a living wage who works in your factory because with mechanization, he's doing the work that used to be done by 10 or 15 or 20 people. When you need 10 or 15 or 20 people to do it, then you have to pay them a slave wage. They have to work 12 hours a day, seven days a week or more. How did we get to the point where we had you know, a 40-hour work week and some time off and stuff like that? You know, People want to say, well, the unions and government did it. No, the unions and government did it. It was a natural way for humans to move. You can only get so much out of people treating them like that for so long. If you want to grow and compete in the true sense of capitalism... Henry Ford did more for the 40-hour week than unions did, and that's a fact. Henry Ford was a capitalist. He was also an elitist. But see, the thing about capitalism, again, is the only natural form of economics. The more of it you allow to be unleashed by a society, the more freedom people have to choose how they want to live. Because that's what real liberty is. Real liberty isn't, you know, just you know, where you live or what name you call yourself. It's the ability to choose the life that you want. Some people want to live in the yuppie area of Manhattan or Long Island or wherever, and they want to live in an urban shithole as far as I'm concerned, but they want to be able to walk out their door and have all of this stuff available to them for money. Some people want to live in the middle of woods, in the middle of nowhere, some people want to live kind of in the urban, rural fringe where I live, where, you know, I'm kind of out in the country and do whatever I want, but I can be downtown in 20 minutes if there's no traffic. There's all different options in this country, and what has created that is, in spite of the controlling mechanisms of capitalism, the liberating aspects of capitalism has what has, is what has made this nation so great. And created so much opportunity for so many. There are very few places. There are very few places in the world where a kid from the coal region in Pennsylvania can build a community like the Survival Podcast and live the life that he wants to live and no one can come take it away from him. For now. For now. Because the thing about liberty is it's not inherited. Each generation must struggle 
to retain the liberty the prior generation left behind for them. They must fight to keep it. There will always be forces seeking to take it. That's just the way that it is. And I hope this helps you just have a new mindset. When you hear terms like socialist and capitalist, libertarian, communist, we have created a new vocabulary for the control of the minds of the people. We have redefined what things mean. Ask someone with a negative view of capitalism, what is capitalism? And if you can get them to stop spouting the, the collegiate propaganda for long enough about rich fat cats and whatever and parasites and whatever, you say, no, I want you to actually, what is it? Define the system. Don't use adjectives uh, that are purgative. Define what it means. What makes a society capitalist? What does it mean? You'll find when they finally get down to the root definition, what they'll say is that the institutions, the, the corporate institutions of the society control the capital itself, control the money, and that makes it capitalism. To me, that's an oligarchy. It's not capitalism. And we can agree with people that we vehemently disagree with politically that, yeah, that's a problem. The fact that the, the banks print the money based on a promise that you will pay it back, that's a problem. That's not good. That is an incredibly controlling situation. But you notice the socialists that advocate for political socialism never address that. Tax the rich guy. Tax the rich guy. It's never, hey, you know what, maybe we should take away the ability for these people to print money on the backs of promises on people's behalf through both taxation and through fractional reserve lending. Like, no one ever points that out. Why? Because it's very good for the people in power, for the people they have control over, to bifurcate into two camps and fight with each other over the thing that isn't the actual problem. That's why. So the solution, it's up to you, man. How are you going to live your life? Are you going to sit around and wail and gnash your teeth? This is the problem with the left. The left finds out all these terrible things that happened in the name of capitalism, and, ah, oh, we got to fix it with, by, by taking it away from them. And the right finds all these horrible things that happened in the name of socialism. And, ah, oh, we got to fight them. I mean, all you do is fight each other. And the people that are in control, they're not letting go anytime soon. So what's the solution? The solution is you take control of your life and the things that you can put your hands on and the things that you can touch, the things that you can actually control and influence. If you want a small holding, you build your small holding. If you want a big company, you build your big company. You do it in spite of the mechanisms of control. That's what they're actually afraid of. That's why they're afraid of, equally afraid of, the billionaire entrepreneur who doesn't give a damn what the state does. And place outside the state systems. Who wants to set up freaking seasteading or something like that. And they're equally afraid of the redneck hippie duck farmer who sends a message that if you don't want to live within their systems of control, you don't have to. They're afraid of everybody that thinks that way. Now, they're not afraid of the individual. What they're afraid of is that if you leave people alone long enough... That mindset will reach what's called a critical mass. A critical mass is when it's not a majority. It's a sufficient number 
that it can no longer be stopped. It continues to grow organically and naturally on its own. So it not just becomes a majority, but it becomes a supermajority. And if you can get any group of, a significant group of people to think a certain way, especially if that certain way or that certain thing is valid and actually works, there'll be, it's almost like there's like one more. We don't know what the number is, but you can be one under it and it doesn't happen. And once you go one over and you hit that critical mass, it, it's, it's unstoppable. It starts to roll. And you no longer can control it, so you have to come up with a new system of control. That's what they're afraid of. That's why they're so big on every child should go to college. Because that puts everybody in debt. <laughs> That's great. Now we have another means to control them. You know, Hamilton wanted to control the states from the, from the seat of the federal government by making sure the states were in debt. And today, the oligarchy wants to control society in the name of education but education that thereby requires that they become in debt. Well, you know, Bernie Sanders wants college to be free. College is not going to be free. And in the, in the countries you think college is free, it's not free. Somebody pays for it. That's just another way to economically control people. And guess what? Everybody doesn't get to go. You can literally be an idiot that barely gets through high school with a D average And you can still, if you really want to, get in and go to a college in this country and get someone to pay for it with a loan. If you are that person in these countries where college is supposedly free, you don't get to go to any college. They don't just say, well, anybody who wants to go can come. By the time you're getting close to graduating high school, they've, they've classified you. You're college bound. You're high, high value college bound, right? And not the competitive thing we have here, where you got to try to sell yourself to Harvard. And you say, like, you're, you're Harvard quality. You know, Oxford over there, I guess. Right? But then it's like your trade level. You're not going. You don't get to. They decide for you who and what you'll be. It's just another way to control people. Here, we have a lot more freedom. So you got to find a way to do it that doesn't get in the way of the perception of freedom. So, hey, just take a loan. All of a sudden, these colleges are like, you know what? Sure, we'll let you in. Yeah, we don't give a shit. We're out of space. Build another building. How, how are we going to do that? Oh, some dumbass gives these kids loans. Well, how much? As much as whatever we charge. Whatever we charge, they'll just give them money. You're like, well, I, well how can the oligarchy make money? Because it's not real. It's fake money. Your promise to pay it back lets them write a check against nothing except you. Now you owe them. They just created money out of thin air that you're going to spend that goes into the economy that they run. Or you break the cycle. Does that mean you don't go to college? No. It means you don't go to college unless you know why you're going. Unless you sit down and go, this education leads to this career path. This is how much money I'm going to have to spend to get there. This is my time to pay it back. And Excel doesn't lie, and it says that if I do this, that this will pay off for me. How many people that go and take out $80,000 or more loans do you think do that? Do you think it makes sense to borrow $80,000 with no idea how much money you're going to make just because somebody said you'll make more with a degree than without one? Doesn't make any sense at all. Another means of control. But you decide. You decide to get the degree in gender studies or to get the degree in engineering or to walk your own path on independent study. You decide. You decide where to live and how to live. You decide what you're going to do and what you're not going to do with your life. And if I've said anything 
in the last 11 years about how to take control for yourself, it's that. That message for me will never change. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. And I uh, want to remind you one of the ways you can help support us is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. When you go to tspaz.com, no matter what you eventually buy, you will help out the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. Um, I've got a product of the day for you. It's a new one. I've been doing a lot of re, re, reusing the last couple of weeks I've been so busy. I got a bunch of new stuff coming out that I've been testing and using here. And uh, this one is kind of, it's kind of a redo, but it's a new brand, a new type. So I'm a big advocate for making coffee and tea and doing some other things like marinades and what have you in your kitchen of using a French press. I think a French press makes the best coffee that you can make in your house. I think there are some machines that are commercially available that cost thousands and thousands of dollars that can do better. But what the average person could do in their house without spending, you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars, a French press for 25, 30 bucks is the best you can do. I have recommended one by a company called Fine Dine for quite a while. It is an awesome press, but the body is made of glass. And I think it's great because you can see what's inside there and it looks cool. Um, But my wife and I have been talking about getting a second French press because I drink a lot less coffee than I used to. I drink a cup or two in the morning, and I switch over to tea. Sometimes she wants more coffee. Sometimes there's still another cup of coffee in there. She's not ready to pour it out yet, and I want to make it. See what I mean? So I don't really mind cleaning it out and switching to tea, but sometimes it's just not available. So I'm like, I should get another one. She's like, you know what? We, we should take our French press when we go on vacation. That way we can make coffee instead of the shitty coffee that they have, the shitty coffee makers they have in the hotel rooms. And yes, that is a quote from my wife, and God, I love that woman. Um, so I was thinking, well, if we're going to get a second one and we're going to take it on vacation, and the way baggage handlers are, we should get one that's not made out of glass so it's less likely to get broken. Well, I found this one made by a company called Sakura, and it's made out of stainless steel and it's insulated. It's an excellent French press. It's about 25 bucks for 34 ounces, which is kind of a standard size. They also have a big one that's 50 ounces for $34. Both of them are linked in the article. You should check it out. It really uh, it really is a great product. I'm really impressed with it. Um, it's got over 4,000 reviews, a 4.5-star overall rating, and I checked on FakeSpot, they got a B. So it ain't an A, but you know the majority of those reels are legi reviews are legitimate reviews by people that bought this thing and use this thing. I've bought it. I'm using it. If I can come up with a single criticism, the top, right, that, that goes down on top of it when you're pushing the plunger down, that covers it, it doesn't fit real tight. You can kind of jiggle it around a little bit so it doesn't seal like a thermos or something like that. Um, so some people were bitching on some of the negative reviews that it doesn't keep your coffee hot for like a long time. I don't know what a long time is, but when you put coffee or tea in a French press, when you push it down, you do get a pretty decent separation of the liquid and the solid, but there is still some exchange, and it gets tannic and not so good after a while anyway. If you wanted to make you know a bunch of coffee and store it long term, put it in a thermos or uh, a dispenser of some sort, you know, you don't keep it for hours in a French press anyway. It does stay hot for a long time. I uh, made some Earl Grey yesterday and, and tried it out, and about 30 minutes into it, I poured the last cup, and it was still steaming hot. I don't know what else you want. I'll tell you what I think these special children that went to the government indoctrination centers might have a problem with. The lid has a way that you turn it where you can pour the coffee or tea or whatever out of it. And uh, there's a little arrow there because unlike the glass one, you can't see in the side. And that's where it's got a big old gap. 
Well, when you turn it about 25% of the way, it closes that gap. I think some of these special little children don't understand to close the damn thing. You can imagine why. Anyway, I think it's a great French press. I've heard from a couple of people that already bought it that say they like it. So check it out. Remember, when you're thinking about coffee, we have three great coffee producers in the MSB. They are Holler Roast, Food Forest Farms, and Mai Tai Coffee. They all give you discounts. So if you're going to get your French press, that's what should go in it. And the write-up today, I give away two of my favorite uh, hand-blended teas that you can make yourself. And as always, if you shop at Tea Spaz, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. Uh, let's talk about our song of the day today. It is Hey Cinderella by Susie Boggess. And, of course, we're doing all songs this week that were inspired by fairy tales. And I want to speak to, because I think that, you know, if you didn't put your ideology on the shelf like I asked you to today, you might be thinking Jack is advocating socialism as in the way people usually think about it. And I don't know where you'd come off of that, but I know I'm going to get an email or two. That type of socialism, you might as well call it a Cinderella story. It sounds good, but it doesn't happen. It doesn't work. Our society is so content today that we have the luxury of bitching about having to do anything for anything and saying that someone should provide it to us as a right because our society works that good. And it literally is a fairy tale that you can have a place where everybody's just given not just what they need, but everything that they want and have at work. And that's kind of what this song's about. But This song's about... The propensity that I, I have to say, I do, I know I'm going to get hate mail over this, but I think that women fall into this more than men, not that men don't ever at all. But this concept of the Disney style of life that ends with, and they lived happily ever after. And so many young people get married today with this viewpoint that marriage will just be this fairy tale. In fact, we make our weddings as fairy tale like as possible. The bride is in a beautiful dress and there's pomp and circumstance and everybody has a big party and everybody wishes them a happy future. And then they find out marriage is work. Or in the words of my wife, love is a choice. And love as a choice requires work. And instead of teaching people this, We continue to prep, prep, you know, perpetrate the fairy tale belief, and then we wonder why we have such a high divorce rate. People should go to marriage a lot like they go to college when that's the right choice for them. They should make a decision that they really want to be with this person for the rest of their life, but also that they're willing to do the hard work that will eventually come. Otherwise, you may find yourself saying to yourself, Hey, Cinderella, what happened? With that, It's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.